one of the lesser known verses and certainly one of the less sung verses of that venerable hymn is the verse that actually precedes that last one that we sang. It says, Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O, o voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And then that verse we say at the end, and Lord haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. You know, we don't interpret scripture through current events, but we should look at current events through the lens of scripture and be reminded, as we do, of the truths that we sing about, that we speak to each other about, that we hear taught to each other week in and week out. The sovereignty of God over all things, the certain promise of God of the return of Christ for us, as essential to the gospel is his coming again as was his first coming, and we trust in these things. And so as we see some of these horrific events happening in the Middle East and the heartless attacks in Israel on civilian groups, neighborhoods, kibbutz, places where communities gather. Um, as we see these things, we're not ignorant that difficult times were promised in Scripture to come. But our hope, again, is not in what we see or what we think. It's not in the uncertainty of our emotions. It's in the promise of Christ. And we know these things will ultimately not be resolved until Jesus. Nonetheless, we pray. And we strive to be faithful. So today, let's pray. Father, we pray for peace in Israel. We pray for the defense of the defenseless. Father, I pray for the protection of children and families, schools and communities, neighborhoods and cities. Father, I pray for justice. And Father, we pray as your people have prayed since the ascension of our Savior, that Jesus would come quickly. Lord, until that day, I pray that we would be faithful to the King, that we would not shrink back, we would not lose faith and begin to doubt, we would not trust in the uncertainty of what we feel or how we perceive or translate events, but Father, in these difficult days, we would we would intensify our efforts to know you, to be in your word, to be prayerful, to be trusting, to be listening, to be committed to one another, to be encouraging of one another, to remind ourselves and remind each other of these truths that we believe and that your people have believed now for two millennia. And you are enough. And we can trust you. So, Father, I pray that, Lord, in these troubled times, you would be glorified nonetheless, that evil would be defeated, that many would come to faith in Jesus Christ, many would join the kingdom of the great king, many would have their lives transformed, Lord, many would be delivered, and Lord, that your will and all things would be accomplished. Lord, this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was reminding myself this morning as I was revisiting this text, and really the, the potential of going pretty deep here, the challenges of this text, and so many different possibilities. For those of you who are a little bit of nerds like me when it comes to things like Lord of the Rings, I, I was reminded of this quote, Moria, you fear to go into those mines. The dwarves dug too greedily and too deep. And I thought, that's going to be me in this text. I'm going to dig a little too greedily and a little too deep. There's so much to see and so much to unearth here. But I hope at the very least you'll have some tools to deal with this text properly. And you'll have some motivation to want to dig deeply for yourself. Because there are so many implications of this short passage we're going to look at today from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So open up your Bible with me there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're in verse 1 today. And verse 1 starts with a statement, which again just begs the issue that we've got to look back and see what is he referencing here? How does it connect with all the rest? And if it sounds like a broken record at this point, then I guess that's good. It's all starting to become clearer and clearer to us. You can't read any passage of Scripture outside of its context and get it right. You just can't. 
You're going to misunderstand what it says. Worse than that, you're going to not do what it says. You're going to misapply it. In so doing, you're not going to catch what God wants for us. And so looking back at this text, he starts with this phrase, but understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, let me make just a few random observations on the text before I delve into some understanding and application of it. Be careful that your eschatology doesn't lead you to believe that difficult times are only future tense or that we're the only people who are ever facing difficulty or difficult times. Paul told Timothy way back in the first century, is this on? Can you guys hear me now? All right, we're back. Paul told Timothy, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So what are the last days by definition then? What are these last days? Is it the times that we're living in right now? Was he referencing 2023 or thereabouts? Was he talking about 2050? Was he talking about the year 3000? I mean, what was he talking about here? We need to understand when the scriptures reference the last days, it's a wide, largely undefinable period of time that really commenced when Jesus ascended and concluded when Jesus returns. And in these last days, in this era, this epoch of time that's coming, he says difficult times are going to come. Now, for Paul speaking to Timothy, it was clear, it was apparent to Timothy and really every Christian there that difficult times were already around them. I mean, they were in them already. Paul had been arrested. Paul had been chained and imprisoned simply for being faithful to Christ, simply for being willing to share the gospel at all costs. It had cost him almost everything, almost up to his life. He'd been abandoned even by those who were supposed converts. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, All who are in Asia turned away from me. And in chapter 1, verse 8, he told Timothy these challenges. Don't be ashamed about me. Don't be ashamed of your association with me. And don't be ashamed of the message that we bear, your testimony, my testimony about the Lord. And and he says, share in suffering like a good soldier. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, share in suffering. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, endure everything. In verse 11, He says, we may have to die with him, but when we die with him, we know we're going to live with him. And when you get to the end of chapter 2, or near the end, starting in verse 14, he reminds Timothy of all this useless debating and these controversies fomented by these opponents of the gospel, which ultimately proved to be toxic. And this toxic false teaching, he said, will spread like gangrene throughout the church. It'll sicken and ultimately kill not only the, the momentum of the church, and destroy the message of the church, but it'll destroy it at its very core. So why is he telling Timothy to understand something that Timothy already knows? Well, here's the principle for Timothy then and for us now. A permanent characteristic of every era, every era, again, since the ascension of Christ until his return, is that this world that we live in, and this world's systems, and this world's system of beliefs and this world's view of truth is going to be in opposition to what is absolutely true and what is perfectly good. The world and everything about it, the influence of the great enemy of God and God's people, Satan, is going to be opposed to everything that's from God, everything that's true and good. We have to understand this reality and be prepared for it. Same is true for us now as it was for Timothy then. It's as if he's telling Timothy something like this. Timothy, you need to understand this ministry I'm calling you to. And the ministry I'm calling the church to in this century, that first century, in the face of all the persecution that was about to come and all the opposition that was all around them and all the false teaching both in and out that affected them, that was constantly coming against them. You need to understand, Timothy, this is not ever going to change. It's never going to be easy. I don't want you to ever think, Timothy, that if you just shrink back for a little while, if you just take it easy for a little while, if you withdraw from the fight, if you, if you stop trying to deal with the controversies, if you stop trying to address the false teachings, if you, if you stop battling with the enemy, you know, if you just back up for a little while, it'll all die down and you'll be good. You can make peace with a culture that is at war with God. He's telling Timothy that'll never happen. The truth will always be at war with a lie. God will always be at war with his enemy. And the church will always be opposed by the world. He says it's not going to change. And he says another permanent characteristic is going to be this. 
the presence of false teachers and false teachings. This is going to mark every age. We can look back historically, and we can find some that are famous or infamous, I should say, and we could dig a little bit more deeply and find some that you've never heard of, but every era of the church has had to deal with that, different forms and types, but almost always with certain similarities, false teachers and teachings, and what should the church do with those false teachers and teachings? Mark them and avoid them. Mark and avoid them, those false teachers and teachings. So let's pick up there in verse 3. Understand this. In the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? Verse 2. For, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. Now that's a pretty long list, laundry list, of the sorts of behaviors, beliefs, lifestyles you're going to see with increasing intensity as we approach the return of Christ. I don't think it's necessarily an exhaustive list. It doesn't cover everything that we're going to see. It's a representative list. And I'm not going to elaborate on what each of those mean because I think they're really self-apparent. I think the list was given by the inspiration of God from Paul to Timothy because it's self-apparent. It requires little explanation to know what those things mean. But those things mark the same things. They mark a behavior that's rooted in wrong belief. If you think doctrine doesn't matter, what you believe about God and what you believe about God's expectations for our relationship with him and other people don't matter, then look at this list because this is what unbelief creates. It creates those kind of behaviors. And if you want to do an assessment of how you're doing personally or spiritually, see if your actions, your attitudes appear on that list. And he says this is a common condition of those who are opposing the truth. He uses two examples Two names, Janus, Jambres. Just as they opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. I'm going to talk about those two men tonight in our message in our Sunday night worship night. Who were these two men? How did they oppose the truth? How did they oppose Moses? Why this reference point here? What does every false teacher and false teaching have in common throughout the centuries in every era, from way back to Moses and opposing him to now with Timothy and Paul and opposing them to us today? We'll talk about that tonight. But I'm going to give two sort of broad, overarching summary statements about what this text means for us. The, the first one is this. When he's talking about these false teachers and teachings, their affections, affections is the word I want to use there. When I say affections, what do they desire? What's in their hearts? What, what's their motivation? What stirs them to this? Why do they do what they do? Because you've heard me say this before, oftentimes, we all ultimately do what we want. At the very root of our behaviors is always desires. Our temptations come in and affect us at the point of our desires. That's what the Bible says. We're each tempted according to those desires. If I don't have a desire for a thing, I can't be tempted for that thing. It's not going to appeal to me. At the point of my desires, my wrong desires, my evil desires, temptation comes in addressing those desires, promising to meet them, and then I fall prey to those temptations when I yield to them. But it starts in the heart. So what are their desires? And according to this passage, I think their desires or their affections, their loves, are either A, tragically misplaced, or B, decent love, the right kind of love, and loving the right sort of things is absent altogether. So think about this, big picture. In the last days, you're going to find people who are so disordered at the core from the center of who they are, which we would refer to euphemistically as from the heart. From the heart, with disordered desires, 
They're either going to love the wrong things or love things wrongly, or their hearts are going to be so depraved, so given over to sin and to evil that decent love is absolutely gone. And so when you think of it in those terms, again, look at the list. They love themselves, lovers of self. I do what I want to do to please me. My ultimate aim is my own satisfaction or pleasure. I am God to me. Or I love money, the possession of things, and wealth. Or I'm, I'm proud. I, again, that's a, a function of self-love. Arrogant, abusive. Again, misplaced love. They're not loving their parents. They're ungrateful. They're unholy. Or they're heartless, unappeasable slanders. You see the list. And we begin to realize, if love for God is absent, if at the core of me, my most essential love, my most defining love, is not a love for God. God, I want to love you. I want to know you and love you. I'm going to love you in response to your love for me. If that's not central to me, knowing and loving God and doing whatever I can do to please him, then every other sort of self-love, wrong love, or absent love is possible. If love for God is non-existent, any immorality is possible. If at the core of my life, if what's guiding me at the center is not, God, I love you, so in my love for you, how can I demonstrate it? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. You'll keep my commandments. Love for God is always expressed in obedience. Not exclusively expressed in obedience. It's more than obedience. It's affection. It's worship. It's faithfulness. It's prayer. All these are expressions of love for God. It's more than obedience, but it's never, never less than obedience. You can't separate coming to Christ, following Christ, accepting the command of Christ to love me with your whole heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. You can't separate becoming a Christian follower of Christ who loves Christ and obeying Christ, being submissive to Christ. So at the core of this is this broken up, misplaced love where God is not the center, love for God is not the center, and something else will take its place. Love for myself. Love for things and possessions, love for power, love for authority, whatever it may be. And all of these things will be possible and more. And all these things will naturally follow. And again, it may not be even misplaced love. It may be to the point of where I feel like I have no capacity to love. I'm not, I'm treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. I, I'm doing all of these things out of where my heart is. So where love for and honor of God is non-existent, any immorality is, is possible. Speaking of which, and I thought about this question for myself as I was exploring this, Paul's describing culture. He's describing the fruit of bad teaching and bad belief, which results in bad behavior. He says, this is what's out there. This is what you're going to see in the world. This is what you're up against. And sometimes it'll encroach even into the church. So it sort of begs the question for me, this, so what's the role then of the church when it comes to public morality. I mean, what should we be doing about these things? We see this stuff all around us. I mean, this is, this is easy discussion fodder for a D group or a few Christians sitting together over a cup of coffee or a small group. Easy discussion fodder. Do we not see these things? And in what ways are we seeing these things? I think you could find many examples. I could spend hours just giving you cultural examples, personal examples, not necessarily me, but of persons who are doing all these things. So what should our response be? What should the Christian response be? I, I love this quote that I found from R.C. Sproul in a message that he'd given years ago. He said, we have an axiom in our culture that's repeated every time a law is in dispute. And it goes something like this. I'm sure you've heard it. You probably already know what I'm about to say. He says, perhaps, God forbid, you even said it. That it is said of governments, you cannot legislate morality. Have you ever heard that expression? You can't legislate morality? He says, now on the surface, prima facie, that's a ridiculous statement. It's an exercise in absurdity. In a word, ladies and gentlemen, it's silly because if we mean by that you can't legislate morality, and this is the way it's used again and again and again in public debate, is that the government ought not to be involved in enacting laws or passing legislation that curbs, restrains, or restricts human behavior or morality. Well, think of it. If we would eliminate moral concerns from legislation, what would Congress be left to do in terms of the enactment of laws? Pass laws concerning the state bird? 
But even that would have ecological and therefore ethical and moral ramifications. In other words, he speaks on the absurdity of thinking you can't, by law, legislate morality. That's what laws do. So what should Christians do in a culture like ours? We should be doing all that we can to see that we have laws in place that legislate the morality that fits with decency and common good. Now, we know we can't legislate every type of morality. We can't, say, force people to go to church. We can't force people to become Christians. But we can be consistent with a biblical ethic of right living amongst people and expect it to happen. So we should elect people. We should endeavor to elect people with right morality that will pass the right sort of laws. We should speak publicly as Christians what are the implications of following Christ. We should be calling people to repent. Not by saying that by repenting and living better you're going to become a Christian, but by warning them of the judgment that is to come. What is the judgment? Is the judgment on human sin. How can we rightly pronounce the coming of Christ in judgment for those who are unbelievers, those sinned against God, without talking about the sins that they're guilty of? It's the role and responsibility of the church. Terminology we're familiar with would be things like salt and light. How do we preserve the sort of culture that we want our kids and grandkids to grow up in? How do we provide a light that points people to who God is in Christ? By talking about law, right and wrong. Going way back in our, in our reform tradition, since the Reformation, how does the church rightly see the application of law and what should we be doing about it? Going way back, John Calvin said, I say that not only they who labor for the defense of the gospel... But they who in any way maintain the cause of righteousness suffer persecution for righteousness. Therefore, whether in declaring God's truth against Satan's falsehoods or in taking up the protection of the good and innocent against the wrongs of the wicked, we must undergo the offenses and hatred of the world, which may imperil either our life, our fortunes, or our honor. Why do I give you that quote? Because one phrase you're going to hear again and again is that's not the church's purview. You know, the church is just about the gospel. We're just about introducing people to Jesus. But I think you can't introduce someone to Jesus fully unless you introduce them to Jesus who is king. And Jesus who says, come and follow me. Jesus who gives us a commission that says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so part of the call of the gospel is not to say, listen, we're just about evangelism, so we're not going to talk about those social issues, which are in our time and place almost always moral issues, not merely social they're moral issues. They're biblical issues. We ought to, as Calvin rightly said, be willing to suffer not only for declaring the gospel, but suffer for declaring Christ, Christ Jesus as king, and the expectations of that king. And so public morality is something we ought to address. So there's the challenge. Here's the, met, the, the big picture description, a common condition of opposers of the truth. Their hearts are in the wrong place. Their loves are misplaced. Or they don't love rightly altogether. A second condition of them is whatever religiosity, and I hope you get a sense of what I'm saying about that word, because he says this in verse 5, he says, having the appearance of godliness. So keep in mind the sort of people that Timothy was addressing were the false teachers that those new converts in Ephesus might go following after. And he says of them, listen, they look a certain part. They have an appearance of godliness, but they're denying its power. Now, what do you suppose Paul meant by that? He wasn't talking in what we might consider modern charismatic sort of terms. He wasn't saying they preach a good message, but you don't see any miracles there. They preach a good message, but you're not seeing any spiritual manifestations or displays. That's not the context of power here. What he's talking about is they have an appearance of something because they claim to be it. They claim to be speaking for God. They claim a certain understanding, a certain new teaching, a certain new revelation. But here's what they're lacking. They're lacking the one thing that cannot be faked. The one thing that cannot be pretended. The one thing that will show up eventually or the absence of it will reveal itself eventually. And that's the work of the power of the Holy Spirit that makes people into new creations in Christ. He says they can't fake that because they don't have that. So they're never going to be guided by the Holy Spirit. 
They're never going to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. They're never going to grow up in Him who is the head, even Christ, as Ephesians chapter 4 says. They can't do that because they don't have that. So whatever religiosity they express, it's feigned. It's pretend. They have the externals down, but what they don't have is the eternal, internal power of the Holy Spirit that makes men new. When you look at false teaching and false teachers, look also at the life. The one thing that our culture has done far too often, it seems, in regard to false teachers is people whose messages that we like or who, who we find inspirational or who say things to us that we think are personally beneficial, far too often we seem to give them a free pass when their personal or private lives don't match, don't align. But he's a great teacher. Oh, but he, he really helped me get out of debt. Or that, that person's teaching really helped my marriage. But their personal life doesn't back that up. They don't have the work of the Holy Spirit in them because they don't have the Spirit of Christ. You can only fake the new life for so long before certain exposure comes. Wait, this doesn't add up. These two things are not the same. So he says of these false teachers, he says this, he says having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. They'll say things that you want to hear. They'll do what I warned you will happen these last days. He says in the last days people are only going to want to hear teachers who say what their itching ears already want to hear. So they're going to speak things that people enjoy. They're going to speak things that people want to hear and invite the hearing of. But their lives are not going to match. He says, what do you do with these people? Look at the next three-word sentence. Avoid such people. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. So what's our right response to false teachers and false teaching? It's simple. Avoid. You avoid. Avoid, in case the meaning of that is not readily apparent, means have nothing to do with, steer absolutely clear of. When I say avoid, what am I talking about? Don't buy their books. Don't download their podcasts. Don't share their social media posts. Don't quote them, giving them validity. Don't listen to or purchase or download the music that comes from their churches because all that does is perpetuate their false teaching. It funds it. Some of you may have watched recently the documentary series that was on Hillsong Church and the, the fall of Hillsong. And it didn't take very long, and whatever your, whatever your conclusions were of the series, it didn't take very long to see that the music enterprise behind Hillsong kept afloat a large international enterprise of church planting. Many, if not most, and, and I only say that being generous, because I think all were promoting false teaching everywhere. How were those churches being able to be planted all over the globe, promulgating so much false teaching? Because so many of us, in churches like ours, were buying their music, creating a funding for it. How is a church in Redding, California called Bethel able to promote itself so internationally, so widespread? Because thousands of churches like ours are purchasing their music, paying the rights to sing the songs of Bethel music in our churches. You say, what's a good song? You know, I like the words of that song. You know, that, that, song, that song helps me. I'm, I'm walking along, I'm singing that song. I like it. It's got a catchy tune. I can dance to it. That's old cultural reference. Sorry if it went over your head. That's American bandstand. Sorry, it's, that's who I am. That's my age. And that song sounds good in its own context. But then look at the person who wrote it. And look at their teachings. Look at their claims. And look at the direction those funds go and what it continues to promote. What do we do with these teachings? Do we filter them? Do we use parts and portions of them? Do we, do we use the teachings they have that are actually good because no one lies all the time or says things that are never helpful or true? No, we avoid them completely. You say, well, why should we do that? That seems extreme to me. I, and I'm smarter than that. I'm more mature than that. I'm wiser than that. I, I know how to eat the fish and spit out the bones. Well, let me give you just a simple injunction from Scripture. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 18. Now again, briefly consider the context of this. This is the most thoroughly theological 
treatment we have in the New Testament. It is a, the most thorough treatment of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ in all the New Testament. The gospel most thoroughly explained and applied is in the book of Romans. It's the most theologically rich and deep book in the New Testament. And at the end, there's this conclusion. So chapter 16 is like a summary of things, these final words. In verse 17 and 18, I appeal to you, brothers. And that's a strong word. He doesn't simply begin, I appeal to you. He's speaking from the heart. Hear me on this. Listen to what I'm saying for your sake. That's the tone of I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now, again, listen to the criteria. He didn't say those who are 100% wrong, 100% of the time, avoid them. No, he says those who are causing divisions, creating obstacles, those who are teaching contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Is this an obstacle for you? Is that, a, is that something that's causing you to lose something of your understanding of the truth? Is that causing a stumbling block for you in following Christ faithfully? Is this creating division and discord? Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. That sort of statement does not fly well in 2023 America. And that's just loaded down with judgment sort of words. The naive? So you're saying I'm naive then. I'm saying there are millions of naive Christians that are being dissuaded or wrongly persuaded by smooth-talking, flattering preachers and teachers who say what people want to hear or who do exactly as Paul said would happen when he spoke to Timothy. They just simply make up things, and Paul used the term nonsense, and they teach nonsense, and they deceive the hearts of the naive. Why are they doing this? Either they're self-deceived or they're willingly deceptive, but they're serving their own appetites. They're serving their own appetites for fame or money or influence, whatever it may be, but they're not serving Christ, so avoid them. Now, let me spend just a moment on this, just out of sheer necessity, okay? I don't want to go too far down this mine or delve too deeply. But as I was thinking about this statement, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions. Avoid them. I thought to avoid someone. And I told you early in the message, how do we deal with false teaching and false teachers? You mark them and you avoid them. How can I avoid them if I've not marked them? And how can I mark them if I've not identified them? I, I can't avoid someone I don't know or someone that I don't know that I should be avoiding. You follow what I'm saying? To mark and avoid false teaching and teachers means you have to identify by name who those false teachers are. And we have an example of that in this very letter. At least six different times in Paul's letter to Timothy, he identifies by name false teachers. And it wasn't just a private, personal letter to Timothy. This is for the consumption of the church. And this would be, this would be dispersed throughout the churches. And so he names their, their names. Later on, we'll see this one in chapter 4. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Don't follow him. In chapter 1 of this letter, we saw Phygelus uh, or Phygelus and Hermogenes. They turned away from me. He says, don't follow them. He says, Hymenaeus and Alexander in chapter 1. He says, they have caused people to shipwreck their faith. Avoid them. Or those who have talk like gangrene that spreads. Hymenaeus and Philetus. He's naming people by name so that they will know, listen, I'm marking them for you. So you'll avoid them. Don't give them play anymore. Don't give them access to your mind and your heart anymore. Don't sit under their teaching. Don't entertain it have nothing to do with them, avoid them. So when you think of a growing list that we have in our age of people to mark and to avoid, one more we have to add to our list. I don't think it's a shocking addition. I think for anyone following this ministry for years, maybe even decades, would see this coming. But I think of late to add to our list is a popular pastor teacher whose most recent revealed trajectory says we mark and avoid, and that would be Andy Stanley. If you're listening to his messages, listen, I've got some of his books. I've listened to his tapes, and there's value in some of those things. But his most recent teaching and application of it on sex and gender, marriage and the gospel, are incompatible with biblical Christianity. I remember several years ago, he, he famously gave a message of unhitching from the Old Testament, as if it were never necessary. I thought that was preposterous then and dangerous to the gospel. But his teaching now 
is unhitching itself from the Gospels. He's unhitched himself from the Apostles. He's unhitched himself from 2,000 years of historic Christianity. If you've not followed this story, let me just do this very briefly because this is not the primary intent of the message today. But let me recommend a couple of articles that might bring you up to speed on the subject. Denny Burke wrote an article on October 5th, or it was published on the 5th of this month, called Christians Cannot Agree to Disagree with Wolves. You can quickly Google that. Christians, Denny Burke, Andy Stanley, Christians cannot agree to disagree with wolves. And he says this, he says, anyone who claims to follow Christ but then denies him by their deeds is lying and the truth is not in him. Where does he get that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. In such cases, churches must not recognize nor treat such unrepentant sinners as born again. To do so would be unfaithful to Christ, but that is apparently what Andy Stanley and North Point are doing. What was he talking about? We was talking about a recent conference on sex, gender, transgenderism, homosexuality, etc., hosted at North Point that Stanley says was pastoral in nature, not theological. And again, that's one of his many flaws. You cannot separate right theology and right practice. What is true and good is what we must do. So by necessity, theology and pastoral work have to fit together. That's why Paul told Timothy, guard your life. That's pastoral. And your doctrine, that's theological. And you can't separate the two. Or one of them will undo the other, and you'll be proven to be false. Andrew Walker um, said this, wrote this. This was on a, a Twitter post. He said, what's clear from Stanley's teaching is he's drawing a distinction between doctrine and practice. What does that mean? It means his doctrine is not, quote-unquote, officially changed, which is why he can technically affirm a biblical view, which I see the defenders on social media of Stanley stating. But for all practical purposes, there's a pastoral accommodation that allows for LGBT-identified persons to disobey Scripture and remain in good standing as a Christian. What Stanley considers as a failure to live up to an unattainable ideal, which is how he identified it, so these people read the same Bible we do, they get married for the same reasons that you and I do, um, to live up to that standard is unattainable for them, and so we draw a circle around them to include them. What he calls an unattainable idea, Scripture calls sinful. Nowhere in, in any of his messages was there any expectation that someone would turn from a same-sex relationship. This is an example of unbounded empathy that listens, which is good, but never invites towards transformation, which is not good. For Stanley, if there's a general commitment to Jesus, that's sufficient. Ethics takes a back seat. And then another article I would encourage you to read very strongly. This was posted on October 3rd socially called Go and Sin No More by Albert Moeller. And I want to read a portion of this to you just a few minutes here. He says, Stanley offers what amounts to a justification for allowing same-sex couples to be part of the church. He spoke of same-sex attracted believers who practice sexual celibacy, but then said, but for many, that's not sustainable, and so they chose a same-sex marriage. Not because they're convinced it's biblical. They read the same Bible we do. They choose to marry for the same reason many of us do, love, companionship, and family. And he said that part I said about the circles. He said, what's missing here? What's missing is not newly absent from Stanley's preaching. What's missing, first of all, is repentance from sin. That's not a small matter. The Apostle Paul summarized the gospel as repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Acts 20, 21. There's no call for repentance in the message Stanley presents. Also missing is sanctification. There's no call to holiness, no call to flee from sin and obey Christ. Instead, Stanley presents the idea that sinners may find refuge in a same-sex marriage because obedience to Scripture and a biblical understanding of sexuality is not sustainable. Muller goes on to make the case, this is not the gospel of the apostles. It's not the gospel of the first century church. It's not the gospel of 2,000 years. Stanley's defense was, I never ascribed to that in the beginning, this gospel that you hold or this belief system that you hold. And he presents this as different, just another choice, another category, when in fact it's clearly a sin to be repented of, to be set free from, to be turned from, and to be made new like Christ in response to. Mark and avoid. Let me give you the conclusion of this. Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and from now on sin no more. John 8, 11. It's impossible to defend a same-sex marriage from Scripture. It's impossible to imagine the apostles conceding that obedience to God's Word might be unsustainable for some believers. Theologically, Andy Stanley appears quite ready to unhitch the church, not only from the Old Testament, but from the apostles. This is not biblical Christianity. It's his own invention, and it is not plausible or sustainable. Let's get back to the text. Why is there a warning in this text to weak women? When you read that part of the text... I'm just wondering, I'm not going to ask because there are too many of you to get an opinion on, but I'm wondering, what was your response to that? You read this text, wait, weak women? 
Why does he specifically note weak women? Again, look at verse 6. Among them are those who creep into households. Let's make sure that we get our, our um, pronouns correct here, okay? So who is the those and the, who's the who and who's, who are we talking about here? Let's not get the, the clauses and phrases out of order. Among those who creep into households, that's the false teachers, capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. So the first statement applies to the false teachers. These are those who do this. All the subsequent phrases reference the women. Weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Okay. I think what is helpful is to reverse the text. Look at this text in reverse order. Okay. They're always learning but never able to come to knowledge of the truth. They're always studying things and reading new things and trying to figure out new things, but they never get to the truth. Lots of information, lots of study, lots of speculation. They never arrive at the point. Here's X on the map that God has drawn. They don't get there. Why? They can't arrive at the truth because they're controlled by all sorts of various desires. Okay, so their desires are disordered, and their disordered desires are affecting their ability to get to the truth. Now, being led by those desires, where are those desires taking them? It says they're burdened with sin. That's the idea of a heaping load of sin on them. Okay, so because of their load of sin on them, which is born out of wrong desires, they're never able to get to the truth. And because of that, that makes them weak and vulnerable to the malignant sort of deviant teaching and aberrant lifestyles of these false teachers. So you get how that works? So he says, he's not saying a general sweeping statement, women are weak, He's saying these women are weak because of this. They're weak because they've got wrong desires, causing them to pile up sin, making them incapable of coming to the truth, therefore rendering them especially vulnerable, especially vulnerable to teaching. The weakness that wrong desires and sin in our lives make us, make us more vulnerable to false teaching is pronounced. Our ability to understand the truth has so much to do with our faithfulness to Christ. These are the opposite of someone who sits at the feet of Jesus, wanting to learn the truth, someone who's saturated with Scripture, someone who's humble in prayer. God, teach me. I want to know you. There's also a challenge here that we ought to consider just for a moment because Paul makes the argument in other places about the deception of Eve preceding the deception of Adam. And I borrow this some from from a woman Bible teacher, so it's not just the misogynistic or, or sexist male saying this, but men and women tend to be deceived differently. Now, I've seen this firsthand. I've seen this personally. I think of teachers that I really like and respect. In a sense, I would say I love them, but it's not in any sort of personal emotional sense. Like, if I listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones on those old recordings that you can find online, I find him difficult to listen to, probably as you would. Monotone, he's got a, a British accent, he's rather nasally. But man, to read him, man, I love it. I, I love to read this stuff. Personal relationship, I, I, I wouldn't say we actually have it. You know, we don't hang out. One, because he's not around anymore. But two, if he were, I, I don't think we would, you know, we'd be buds necessarily. There's certain things I just love to read. But women can be different. They become attached emotionally. But she's so nice. But she's so pleasant. Maybe that's just a wonderful family or such a great story. And we become attached emotionally. And that emotional detachment, that disordered sort of affection, makes you more prone to false teaching. But this is so good. This is so powerful. This is so touching. Whereas a man typically is going to look at, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if this is accurate or not. And we're looking at things through a different lens. That's one of the reasons we need each other, by the way. But it's also recognize there's a certain vulnerability. That teacher that you really like, you know, just so, you know, just so personally attractive charismatic with your story and, and you know, has all these great experiences and you're just so fond of, be careful that your affections, in that sense, don't mislead you into false teaching. And he says this becomes much more amplified if there's sin in your life that affects your filter, your ability to recognize truth. The more we're in sin, the less we're in the Word, and the, more, the less we're in the Word, the more vulnerable we are to false teaching. It's all an easy equation here. But we understand that you might be more vulnerable in certain ways. I'm not apt to be watching this teacher and say, no, but I really like Beth Moore. I mean, she's just so fun, and I would love to just sit down with Beth Moore and, and talk about combing people's hair and stuff like that. Listen, that's not going to happen for me. I'm going to look at what's being said and say, I don't think that's true. 
I don't think that's how God reveals himself. No, there are distinctions between what a Roman Catholic believes about justification and what a Protestant believes. And I'm not going to blur those lines. I'm going to be listening to the truth. I just would warn you as women, so take this for what it's worth. You can be angry. It's okay. I have have a daughter and a wife too. You will be deceived differently than we will. I'm not saying that we're deception proof. I'm saying your desire to, to trust, your proclivity to build relationships more quickly, your sensitivity, your compassion... Your emotions will make you more vulnerable in that sense to someone who appeals to those things. And so you will tend to give a wider swath to someone whose teachings aren't exactly right if you like them. I'll leave it there. Argue that in your life group, but not with me. (laughs) But here's what I love. I love the promise of verse 9. This is a promise, by the way. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Not giving away tonight's message because I want you to come back and hear it. Janus and Jambres, they led a revolution against the preeminent figure in the Old Testament, Moses. I mean, how in the world do you do that? How do you lead people off of Moses, for goodness sake? But they did, but eventually it came undone. There's a promise here that false teaching will eventually come undone. Their folly will be plain to all. They will not get very far. The truth will prevail. The, the truth will come to light. At some point, there will be a necessary junction, an intersection, where you have to say, okay, the trajectory I've been on is here, but the scriptures go here. Will I stick with the word, or will I deviate from it? Will I be faithful to the text, or will I walk away from it? So when the truth is clearly taught and accepted and lived out, which is the aim for the early church, for the modern church, clearly taught, accepted by those who are taught it, lived out by us all, The lies and the resulting ungodly living become obvious by contrast. So when we're teaching the truth, you're hearing the truth. You're accepting the truth. You're receiving it. Yes, that is is true to God's word. That is what God's word says. You're hearing it rightly taught. You're rightly receiving it. And we're not just impassionate, disconnected students of it. We're practitioners of it. When those criteria be met, rightly taught, rightly received, rightly lived, then everything else is false becomes far more obvious. It becomes much more clear in contrast. So, this is what your challenge is going to be, Timothy. This is what your challenge is going to be to us. This is the context that you're in, and it will be the context for every faithful Christian, every faithful church, and every generation until Christ returns. You, however, you, however, look at these final three verses, and I'm going to close. You, however, have followed my teaching, You've heard it. You've listened to it. You've accepted it. You've followed my conduct. You've observed me face to face. You know these two things are not divorced. They're inseparable. You've followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What's Paul telling Timothy? Timothy, my life may look extreme, but I'm not an aberration. You've seen what I've endured for the sake of Christ. Everyone who aims to be faithful to Christ will face persecution. It will not all be the same. It will not all be to the same degree. It will not all have the same effect. But living faithfully to Christ puts you at odds with those who are not and puts you at odds with a world that is opposed to you. He says, indeed, all people will, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is the culture. It's going to get worse. Deception, people deceiving and people being deceived. But as for you, you continue. As for you to continue in Christ, as for you to be faithful no matter the cost, As for you, know the truth and do it and live it. You've seen me suffer this way. Be willing to suffer the same. And it's the same thing that I've given you week after week after week, which some of you repeated to me even before the service began today. Christ is worth it. He's worth it. Timothy, he will be worth it. It'll be costly. You may lose influence and friends. You may face opposition and ridicule. You may even face imprisonment, and genuine persecution. But I'm worth it, so be faithful to me. No, be prepared, expect it, and be faithful. 
These are the times in which we live, and they're not going to change. This is the condition of this world that we're in. So be faithful. Truth will prevail. Christ will prevail. We can be confident knowing this. Ultimately, all of that will come undone, and we will see Christ lifted high. That's our aim. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we consider your word and how to do it, Father, that you would lead us towards obedience. We're not contemplation and consideration, not argument or debate, but, Father, obedience. Father, for our own sake and for the sake of our, our families and friends, those close to us that we have influence over, those for whom our opinion matters, Father, I pray that we'd be wise enough to carefully mark and avoid both false teaching, that's not true according to your word, and false teachers, those who promote it. And Father, that in avoiding them, Lord, we wouldn't think of ourselves as self-righteous, morally superior, but Father, just wise, just wise, guarding ourselves, guarding our families, guarding our, our church collectively from that which could undo us, from that which could spread through us with great toxicity like gangrene or that which could cause great harm like shipwreck, that which could cause people to walk away from the faith. Father, may we not be afraid of the truth. May we not be afraid of sharing it. Lord, with love always, with gentleness, with patience, with kindness, with affection for those whom we share it, but not fearful of sharing the truth. Lord, even if people should reject it or reject us, even if people should walk away because of it, Father, may we never do the harm to someone's soul, to someone's eternity of withholding truth from them. And Father, may we encourage one another to that. Lord, I pray that our takeaway from this today would be a desire to just to know you better. I've got to dig in more. I've got to, I've got to be in your word. I've got to understand you. I want to know you. I want to, I want to talk to you in prayer. I want to sit at your feet virtually as as those disciples did. I want to be that, Father. I want to know you, love you, be faithful to you. Lord, I want to be useful to you. And I want that same for us all as we await your coming. Lord, may we be strong. May we be godly. Lord, may we be, may we be faithful together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.